Our sermon today is taken from Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. Now, specifically, I'm going to be reading 16 through 26, the entire chapter, so that we would not merely end on the bad news uh, of, cha- of uh, verses uh, 19 through 21, but that rather we would, uh, we would understand the full, uh, the full-orbed message that Paul is delivering. Now, you remember that last week I mentioned that Paul in his letters, he tends to have an indicative imperative approach whenever he's writing uh, to the church. The first thing he sets down is things to be believed, the credenda items. These are the, uh, uh, the things that we are supposed to believe about God. These are the, this is the truth taken from his word, building on the scriptures of the Old Testament. Uh, God laid down his his redemptive truth starting uh, in the Old Testament and then all the way through the New Testament. And so he explains that to the church and then he pivots at some point in all of his letters into a therefore, because of these things, therefore, and then he sets forth what we should do. And now he's going to be talking about the way that we should be living our lives here on earth. So uh, it's very important that uh, we pay attention to that to know what it is that we're supposed to be doing in this world, how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to believe is very important, but what we do with that information and live it out is, is equally important as we're being conformed to the image of Christ. But before we come to the word of God as it was given to the Apostle Paul, let us go before the Lord himself and let's ask for his help. Sovereign Lord, we're going to be dealing with weighty things today. We're going to be dealing with important matters, and I know that whenever that happens, whenever we come to your word and we're dealing with things that are of supreme importance, we know that the evil one is doing his work. We know, Lord, that he'll be at our our elbows seeking to distract us. He'll use whatever means he has. He will introduce thoughts that that we wouldn't have had otherwise, uh, distractions. He'll bring up grudges. He'll make us quibble over points. He'll tell us that these things are unimportant compared to the things of life in the, quote, real world. He'll say that that's far more important. Why should we listen to these things? Our endeavors in business and life and romance and pleasure and leisure, all of those things are far more important, he'll tell us. Why don't we think upon them? Let our minds rove to and fro throughout the world, he'll tell us. Don't concentrate whatever you do on what the speaker is saying what the preacher is trying to tell us. And that should be a warning to us. The very fact that he fights so hard to distract us should be a warning to us that these things are so very important and that they mess with his agenda for our lives. So therefore, help us to fix our attention upon the word today and help me, O Lord, to preach. I confess I'm a sinner with, with feet of clay. I have no power to change men's hearts. I can barely reach their ears. It's only if you do the work of of changing hearts and molding and conforming us to the image of Christ that anything good will happen. Remind me that without you we can do nothing, Lord. And I do pray that you would assist me. Give me fire in my bones. Give me zeal for your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to be starting with verse 16 and then reading through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who, have cri- who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What on earth is going on in America at the moment? I I turn on the news and I suddenly feel like I've been thrust into the middle of a dystopian novel, not a particularly good one. Uh, You you would be forgiven if you you feel a little too much like Winston Smith. Uh, People send me news articles and I have to look and and make sure they're not from The Onion or The Babylon Bee. Uh, The things that people are doing and saying are, are just absurd. Utterly absurd. Not just absurd, but, but wicked. Um, I find that, uh, and I don't know if this is the case with you, I hope it is. I find that these days, I, I have to, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I have to do is I have to read or listen to the scriptures before I can go to the news in order to be steeled in, in uh, my heart against what I'm about to hear or learn about what's going on. Now, I have grown used to things as a result of that would have been, that would have been unthinkable in my childhood. I've grown accustomed to them becoming commonplace in the United States of America. Um, Now, when I say I've grown accustomed to things that would have been unthinkable in my childhood, I need to make this point. I did not grow up in the Bible Belt. I did not grow up in a particularly Christian environment. I grew up in one of the bluest of the blue states. I grew up in northern New Jersey. We came from England, which was a place where Christianity uh, was... Uh, When we left, it was on life support, let's put it that way. And when we came to New Jersey, we came to a place also where the gospel was not frequently heard at all. It was not a particularly Christian environment that I grew up in. Uh, There was lots of sin. But one of the things about the sin that occurred when I was a child was it wasn't normalized. It wasn't public. People of the same sex, for instance, did not legally marry one another. Nobody seriously argued that toddlers had the ability to pick their own sex any more than when they told you they were a Tyrannosaurus, you should take them seriously about that. Or that children should be allowed to get sex change surgery, or that they should be taken to gay bars to see drag shows, or to participate in those drag shows themselves. Children fought. We fought a lot. I, I, I fought throughout my entire childhood, but we did not kill all of our classmates. There was pornography, but it was something that you hid away, something that you were ashamed of. People, when I was growing up, could still be shocked by things like, thank you very much, could still be shocked by adultery or foul language or perversion or drug use. Out of wedlock births were still the exception. They weren't yet the norm. And These were things that happened, they were out there, but most people agreed they were wrong. Even if they wanted to do those sinful things, they knew that these things were things that they shouldn't be doing. 
Most people still wanted to grow up when I was growing up as members of the same sex that they were born with. They wanted to finish school. They wanted to get a respectable job. They wanted to get married to someone of the opposite sex. They wanted to raise lots of kids and then tour around the United States of America in a recreational vehicle, taking lots of pictures to bore children with, particularly their grandchildren at slideshows and barbecues and things like that. That was life when I was growing up. Now, why? Why was that the case? that my childhood was so very different from what we see in the United States at the moment. Well, while I wasn't brought up in a, in a truly Christian society where people regularly read the Bible as the word of God and trusted God for their salvation, I was brought up in a culture that was still, and I hate to use this word, but those of you who were raised at about the same time as I was will understand what I mean. I was brought up in a culture that was still Christian-ish, if I can put it that way. Those of you who grew up know kind of instinctively what I mean by that. It wasn't a genuinely Christian environment. The days when the Bible was, was truly believed and honored at, at every level in society, when family prayer and the Christian Sabbath were still the norm in society, and when the gospel was still preached in its essential integrity in most Christian churches, those days were over. We can think of those days as the days, uh, that is when the, the gospel was being actively preached and believed and it was still the regulator for our society. We can think of those days as the day when the gospel fire was burning within our nation. When I was growing up, the fire had mostly burned out. Modernism had put an end to that. But even though the Christian fire wasn't burning in northern New Jersey where I grew up, the, uh, the embers were still there. People still looked to the, to the glowing coals and received some warmth and a little bit of light. The after effect of the fire was still there like a campfire that was no longer being fed, but uh, still there was some smoldering going on, some, some coals glowing. And people still, for the most part, followed Christian ethics, even if they didn't know why they were doing it. But eventually, the afterglow faded out, the campfire went out entirely, and the nation was plunged, for the most part, into darkness. What happened? Well, people turned their back on God. They turned their back on his word. They, they turned their back on the way of his salvation. What did they say? What did we say nationally? I lived through this process where we said, essentially, that was the past. That was the bad old days. We are wiser now. We're further along. It's not just that we have Wi-Fi and that we can cook a pot of noodles in our microwave in seconds flat or fly through a tube in the air at 565 miles an hour and arrive at our destination all the time chatting and sending out cat memes and complaining that the connection is not fast enough while we are traveling through the air. Now human reason and human desire, they will be our guide. They will lead us to a new utopia that will be better than anything that has happened in the past. This, we thought, was progress. We called the throwing aside of, of Christianity and everything that came with it, we called that, as, we called that progress. And we said we're better off now. But what happened 
I have to tell you, was not progress. It was actually regress. And incidentally, if you want a wonderful study of that, uh, as it occurred in the early portion of the 20th century, the first half, I would encourage you to read one of uh, the first books that C.S. Lewis wrote after his conversion. It's called Pilgrim's Regress. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you will see that as the way that Christian goes to the heavenly city. Well, in Pilgrim's Regress, and I'll try not to be Andy ruins the plots of books. In this, the pilgrim is watching how society retreats from the truth of the gospel. Having reached the heavenly city, how we turn around and go in the opposite direction. It is incredibly not just insightful, but prescient. It sees the way that society is going and the things that would happen and the philosophies that people thought were good that were actually destroying things. But what I mean when I say we regressed is that we went back to the pre-Christian period before we had the light of the gospel. We are actually going back to our pre-Christian days and the savage and the selfish ethics that uh, come from from our state of total depravity. The natural man in his natural condition is not somebody who is filled with light and love. We're going back to the kind of situation that prevailed in the days of Rome. Paul understood that and he understood the cause. He understood that when we throw off God, you see all of us have within us an understanding that there is a God. We are all capable of, for instance, looking at a book And I do not for a moment say to myself, well, look, uh, there's a book. It's got uh, what seems to be information arranged in it. Isn't it amazing how wind and wave and time and chemicals all combine to create this book? And so, you know, you would look at me and say, you're an idiot. The book contains information. It makes sense. It's got composition. It's got pages and so on. It obviously has a creator. It's It's got an author. The information has a source. But... What have we done? We've looked at the universe. We see that obviously it has order. It contains information. Your cells contain so much information. It would take several libraries to contain it. And we know chemistry doesn't create information. Only intelligence creates information. You, brothers and sisters, were fearfully and wonderfully made. Your cells contain the signature of God. But what do we do? We deny that. We turn away and we say, no, 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 there is no creator. We are our own rulers, our own creators. And Paul described what happens after you take that, after you, you deny that there is a God. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Romans 1.22. And we'll see together what happens. We do not become wise, quite the opposite. I'm going to start with verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, coming back to the Galatian context, we need to understand that 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 summary that Paul just gave us of the way that people act when they deny God, when they push him aside, that was kind of the norm in Roman society, in pagan societies generally. The Galatians would have been very familiar having seen those things. They, They understood abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, gladiatorial spectacles in which men fought to the death while crowds cheered. They understood slavery and depravity and perversion. They'd seen it in society. It was normal in some senses for them because it was the way that people acted. They understood lies and backbiting and rebellion and all of those things, having experienced them. They knew what it was to be without the light of Christ. And they'd experienced a profound change when Paul, of course, had come and preached the gospel to them, opened their eyes to see the truth, opened their eyes to see that there is a God, that he has sent his son Jesus into the world to to share his light, that he's given us his word to be a rule and guide, a light and a lamp in the midst of our darkness, to turn us away from ourselves. And most importantly, that he had given them the Holy Spirit to change their hearts, to make it possible for them to understand his word and to apply it. They'd gone from hating his laws to loving his laws. Paul had shown them that in life there are only two ways to live. There's the way of life and the way of death. There's the way, the narrow way that leads to salvation and the broad path that the majority of people walk on. There's the way, as he puts it in these verses, of life in the spirit. And then there is the way of life in the flesh. And he says these ways are totally opposed to one another. They have totally different ideas of what is good. Totally different ethical systems. And totally different destinations. One way leads to heaven. The other way leads to hell. And there's no mistaking the two. Because they are irreconcilable. They're constantly at war with one another. Now, Paul has said that one of the most important reasons why God gave people his law, his commandments, was to constrain the behavior of natural men. It was an act of common grace. It was to hold them back. It was to be a ruling guide for their own laws, even where the spirit was not present. And we see this throughout the world. You go from society to society, and you see common moral codes in place. Rules like, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. Believe it or not, that's still against the law in some places. Isn't that amazing? We know in our hearts that these things are wrong. But Paul made the point that these things can't save you. We've gone over that again and again and again. Merely attempting to be moral, to follow these codes. Because they're right and true. And they are right and true. That will not save you. And unfortunately, that was the best that the Judaizers could do, to put people under the yoke of the law once again, to tell them, do these things and you will live. Paul knew that the the yoke of the law was too heavy. No man could bear it. No man could do it except for Jesus Christ. What they had done, therefore, was they brought 
the Galatian Christians who had been freed in Christ, once again, under the bondage of the law and its requirements. They had set them on a path of moralism and legalism that they could never, ever reach heaven by. And it would only breed amongst them hypocrisy, the same kind of hypocrisy that you saw in the Pharisees who, who said, do this, and then didn't do it themselves, who said, these things are evil, and then secretly did them. That kind of thing would break out in the Galatian congregation and none of them would go to heaven, although they would all think that they were being righteous. Paul instead preached Christ. He preached the new birth. He preached the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He preached the need of a new heart. And that was a great promise that God made in the Old Testament back in Ezekiel 36. We'll talk about that. The, the, the promise that God's people, when the... The Lord Jesus Christ came. He would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of a new heart. So that when we have that new heart that's filled with his law, we will obey his commandments, not out of a slavish fear, not out of a desire to save ourselves by it, but but we'll do it out of love. If this is what Jesus, my Savior, says, whom I love, then I'll do it, or at least I'll try to the best of my ability. I will never do the law. Perfectly. None of us. If you think you've kept the law, well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. None of you have. The wonderful good news is that it's not our doing the law that saves us. It's Christ's perfect fulfilling of the law that saves us and our being united to him by faith that saves us. But nonetheless, his law is given to us as a ruling guide for our lives. And God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, causes us to love that law. And therefore, we we love God, the Father, and we love the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we love our fellow men, even when we don't particularly like them. We're supposed to love them. Even our enemies we're supposed to love because they were created in the image of God and because he tells us to love even our enemies. Now, Paul speaks about life in the Spirit. Many people get that wrong. We need to remember, when we're talking about life in the Spirit, we're talking about having God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, changing us, conforming us, molding us, making us. But we need to think of the Holy Spirit as a He, as a person, not as merely God's power within us. The Holy Spirit, and please note this, and because I, I find even I, I'll, I'll begin to think of the Holy Spirit not as a member of the triune Godhead, but as, as the power of God. That's not how we're supposed to think of him, because the Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not merely a force. The Holy Spirit is not like the force from Star Wars. It's not, may the Spirit be with you, says Obi-Wan, and you'll be able to blow up the Death Star, and so on. No, the Holy Spirit is personal. It is the member of the Trinity who dwells within all of God's people, connecting them to Christ, uniting them to him, and conforming us through the means of grace to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, there are people out there who deny that. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, do think of the Holy Spirit as the force or the power of God, but not, they, they deny the Trinity. They deny the Bible's teaching on the Trinity. They say that uh, uh, there's only God the Father and that Jesus was Michael the Archangel and the Holy Spirit is, is simply God's power. I remember having two ladies come to the porch and, it, and they always show up, you know, when it's my day off or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, I can sleep to nine or ten today. It's going to be wonderful. And then ding dong. 
So you shuffle out and you're wearing sweatpants, and I'm like, oh no, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a great uh, witnessing moment. Uh, but I, I, one day I just homed in on this. I said, tell me about the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a person? No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is like a power. I said, so like electricity? They're like, yeah, yeah, kind of like electricity. Like, kind of what powers your toaster then, I said. Yeah, yeah, like that. So I said to the lady, let me ask you this. Can, can you grieve electricity? She looked at me like, are you on drugs? Is that why you're wearing sweatpants at 10 a.m.? <laughs> no, it's Monday, forget it. Moving on. The, uh, but I said, no, can you, can, you, can you make power feel bad? Can you grieve it? Can you make it sad? No, of course you can't do that. I said, well, Ephesians 4.30 says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Clearly, we can grieve the Holy Spirit like I could grieve you, or you could grieve me by showing up in my house at 10 a.m. without any warning whatsoever. <laughs> can you lie, I asked, following that up, to a power? Can I lie to electricity? Well, no, you can't lie to electricity. Well, I said, well, Acts chapter 5 tells us, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled with your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? I said, that's not a power. It's not a, not a power that, that we plug into. This is God dwelling within us. I said, so when... Paul writes 2 Corinthians 1.21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts. As a guarantee, he dwells within us. Do you believe the Spirit dwells within us? No, we don't believe the Spirit dwells within us. They don't believe in regeneration. They don't believe anybody they're speaking to is actually going to enter into heaven. Isn't that wonderful? They believe that they're going to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, that they're never going to see God. They can't come to the Holy, uh, they can't come to the Supper. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're cut off, in essence, from God because the 144,000, and they won't tell you this at the door, but you can ask, and was filled up a long, long time ago with other Jehovah's Witnesses. They're terrible at math, incidentally. One of the fun things to do is, is you say, okay, so the 144,000 is the full number of God's people, right? And that was fulfilled in what, the 1960s, 50s, 40s, 30s? Probably the 40s, right? It's when the 144,000 Jehovah's Witness came in. Because they were expecting Jesus to come back in 1878 and 1914, 1917, so on. They kept setting dates for his return. But one of the fun things to do is you can say, well, um, let me ask you a question. How many people were saved, I mean genuinely saved, uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Do you remember that? Well, you know, wasn't it 3,000 or so? So shouldn't it be 141,000? You know, and you can gradually do that. Well, how about, what, they're probably about 10,000 and you can sit there playing with their minds. And, but what, why do I do that? Well, I try to undercut, obviously, and you should too, their faith in the lies that the watchtower has been feeding them. And the false system that they have embraced, which gives no one any hope. But the point being that if you are a Christian, if you are united to Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit is in your heart. You have been united to him. He's given you that love to Christ because the Spirit loves Christ. And if he's in you, you can't help but love Christ. You're changed dramatically. But if we don't have the Spirit living within us, 
we are inevitably going to act in accordance with our fallen fleshly nature, our totally depraved nature, instead of acting in conformity with the image of the one whom we are being conformed to, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, will act in accordance with the nature of the first Adam, our first father in his fallen state. And that's why Paul writes in verses 19 and 20 and 21, now the works of the flesh, these are the works of our normal fleshly Unfortunately, fallen nature are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I had for a few fleeting moments when I decided that's madness. Uh, I had thought to myself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend weeks going over each one of these. Let's discuss adultery and what it is, fornication, what it is, uncleanness, what it is. Or maybe, no, that would take too long and would be kind of depressing. So let's isolate them. We'll go with the sexual sins that he lists first, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, and then we'll go with the various idolatries that he lists, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, uh, and then the, the, the various behavioral sins, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, and so on. And then the inebriation sins, we might put it, uh, drunkenness, and revelries, and so on. And then I thought, no, no, let's not do that. Let's not dwell on that which is evil. Let's assume that when I say drunkenness, most people know what that means. Unfortunately, some of us know that from experience. They can explain, most people can explain drunkenness and they can explain hangovers. Revelries, what are we talking about there? We're talking about partying hardy, the way the world likes to party. We're talking about the, all of the things that go along with it. You understand murder. Some words, they have a semantic range that's fuller than we would think. Sorcery, for instance, is an interesting word. It's actually pharmakia. And it covers not only the potions that apothecaries in the ancient world would, for instance, brew up in order to produce abortions. Yeah, they knew how to produce a miscarriage. There are certain things that you can take that will do that, just as much as there are today. Um, but it also included, of course, spells and sorcery and the occult and all of those things that draw people off, the things that I was involved in as a, as a teenager that bring nothing good, nothing at all. Well, adultery, fornication, all sorts of sexual uncleanness, you're surrounded by it. Why do you need an explanation of it? Why, why, why should we all step down into the gutter and talk about what it's like to live in the midst of it? If you've been saved, you know what life was like before. And you know how different it is now. And if you're like me, you wouldn't want to go back to that. These are the things that, that come naturally, unfortunately. And when you take away the Bible, when you take away all of God's truth and light and so on, this is what people head towards. It's where the needle of the fallen heart points towards. We ask, why do we fight? Why do we kill each other? Well, because our hearts are filled with rage. What was the first thing that happened after the fall? The first big event that we learn about? Well, it was a murder. Who murdered who? Well, that was Cain and Abel. Had they met suddenly on you know, a subway platform? No, no, they were brothers, actually. Why did he kill him? Well, because he was jealous, and so on. All of these things come out of the, the unchanged heart. But that's not who we're supposed to be. The spirit and the flesh are always at war. 
Romans 7 is a wonderful, wonderful contemplation of that warfare that goes on within us, even in our, in our regenerate nature. We have a desire to do what God says, but then the flesh, it wars against it, pushing us in, in the wrong direction, the corruptions remaining. We know that we'll never have that, that perfect desire to do God's will until Christ returns, but the day is coming when the Spirit will triumph in all of Christ's children. When you will no longer have to deal with the warring of the flesh. When your, your physical material body will no longer be troubled by the things that the fall brought in. When your spirit will no longer be grieved. When the Holy Spirit will no longer be grieved by the things you're doing. Because in that day, like the angels, we will only do the will of God. And we'll be so happy and content doing it. That's the day when Christ comes back. Or when we enter into glory. When we die. If the spirit is in you, therefore, you are not under the control of the flesh. And if you are under the control of the flesh, if you are irreconcilably drawn to those things, if the things in the list of the works of the flesh, and I have to put this to you, if you find that those are things you enjoy, if those are the things you enjoy far more than the things listed in the gifts of the spirit, then I have to tell you it's because the spirit's not in you. And if the spirit's not in you, you're not saved. And if you're not saved, you're going to hell. And I know a lot of people are like, well, you know, all my friends will be there. Uh. Well, yeah, maybe they will, but none of you will be like, this is great. No. What does Jesus say? He says that when a rich man dropped into hell at the end of his life, he asked that a beggar would come and place just a droplet of water on his tongue because he was in constant agony in these flames. Who's saying that? Some nasty Calvinist theologian? No, that would be Jesus Christ, who's the nicest Calvinist theologian who ever lived and the most perfect one. <laughs> I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, you know what I mean. But Jesus tells us the truth about the hereafter, and he warns you there are two places that we can go. There's heaven and there's hell. There's no other. If you are dominated by the works of the flesh to the very end, if you love revelries, dissensions, hatreds, uh, pharmacia, and everything contained within sorcery, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness, if that's your idea of a good weekend, summarized in, in a few verses, you're headed to hell. That should grieve your heart. It grieves my heart. And I'm sure it grieves the hearts of people who know you and who know Christ. Because they love your soul more than you love your soul. And they desire to see you go to heaven. Let me make two quick applications of everything that we've seen. Um, and the first is this. There's an application first to our society at large, and then there's an application to us, obviously, in, in small. We are living in the midst of a hellish way of life that doesn't work at any level. I, I'm sorry our society is, is utterly broken, not working, and getting worse every day, while thinking they're getting better. But we see society breaking down around us. Statistically, it's simply uh, impossible to ignore. And we all talk about we need something to change. We need things to get better. We need people to be better. James Davison Hunter explained the futility of the modern age with this quote. He said, we say we want a renewal of character in our day, but we don't really know what we ask for. To have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of a creedal order that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels. 
This price is too high for us to pay. We want character, but without conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt and shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to insist upon it. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms that we want it. We want everything to get better suddenly, but we don't want the only thing that can produce that, which is the change that Paul's talking about here. The Holy Spirit living within us, giving us new principles. And brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is so absolutely essential. We will never have a moral society unless we are connected to Christ, the only possible source of true morality. Otherwise, all of the things that we see will just get worse and worse and worse. And this needs to be applied in all dimensions of our society. We need a Christian counterculture. We need, at this point, to begin pushing back on the darkness with the light of the word. We need to be proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world. And we need to stop the compromise with evil that we've engaged in for so long. One of the worst places this occurs. You know where my, I am most disturbed, where I'm most convicted, where I am most um, anguished of what we're doing? It's with the next generation with kids. Amen. What we're teaching them at this point in time. We have confused them horribly because we've taken away the only source of truth, thrown it away, and we're shoveling lies from the pit of hell at them and saying, eat this. It's poisonous, but it'll be good for you. We have to do away with the notion that we can raise children in a nation without Christ and in schools that have not Christ and still have moral outcomes. It will never happen. Charles Hodge wrote this in his Systematic Theology in the 19th century. He said, the banishment of religious influence from our schools is impossible. If a man is not religious, he is irreligious. If he is not a believer, he is an unbeliever. Remember two paths, the way of the flesh or the way of the spirit. Either or. You have one or you have the other. This is as true, he says, of organizations and institutions as it is of individuals. Byron uttered a profound truth when he put it into the mouth of Satan, the words, he that does not bow to God has bowed to me. If you banish light, you are in darkness. If you banish Christianity from the schools, you thereby render them infidel. If a child is brought up in ignorance of God, he becomes an atheist. If never taught the moral law, his moral nature is as undeveloped as that of any pagan. The controversy, therefore, is a controversy between Christianity and infidelity, between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial. Would that we'd heeded his words in the 19th century, but we didn't. We said, no, we can create schools that are morally neutral and not produce children who know not Christ nor his way and who are covered in darkness. I, I tell you, we, we need to stop. We, as a, as a people, need to stop with the notion that we can send our, our children into atheistic schools and not produce little atheists who know not Christ nor his word. Second, us. And this is of great importance. There is no moral way to be saved. There is no way that we can work our way into heaven or be good enough to get into heaven. There is no way we can be cleansed of our uncleanness except for faith in Christ. 
You remember, we have that list of those things that the world naturally does. And then we have Paul warning us. I also told you in, the past, in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's the desires of our heart, it means that we are lost in our sins and trespasses and that we're headed for hell. The fruits indicate the nature of the plant. Christ tells us this, so we don't have time to go over Matthew 7, 6, but you remember he went over the fact that a good tree bears good fruit. If your heart is good, good things will come out of it. If your heart is bad, bad things will come out of it. It's not what's outside a man that corrupts. It's what comes from within him. And he said, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You want to know if somebody's a Christian? Watch their life long enough. And remember, you are who you are when you're alone in the dark. Not when you're here on Sunday. You are so well behaved. You really are. But is that who you really are? Remember what Jesus said. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice antinomia, lawlessness. Those of you who hate the law of my Father. And it's not in their hearts. That's because the Spirit's not in your hearts, says Jesus. And therefore, I don't know you. Now, that was many of the Galatians before Christ came into their lives. That was me before Christ came into their lives. Let's remember, all of these people were lawless, haters of God and haters of Christ before he saved them. But what does Paul leave us with? He leaves us with this assurance that if we turn, then we will be saved. That if we follow Christ, that there's nothing that can bring us to hell. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and I'll leave you with these verses. Paul warns and then promises. What does he say? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he turns that around and he says, and such were some of you. That was the way you lived. But what happened? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God changing you forever. I've been through that experience. I know it's real. And I know that if you come to Christ by faith, you will experience exactly what I'm talking about. I pray you would. Let me go before you and go into the presence of God on your behalf and ask for you. God, our Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would be with all of these, your children, that you would call them to yourself. I pray for those who have experienced that new birth that you speak of in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be working in their lives to conform them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would give them hope every day. You would lift up their heads and that you would fix their attention on the mountain of blessings that they have in Jesus Christ. That they would take up their cross daily, die to self and walk after him and grow in grace. And that, Lord, you would take away their discouragements that you would remind them that although they may be sick and weary in this world, all of those things are coming to an end. And that there's a day coming when they will step into the glory that you have reserved for them. And then they will no longer worry about anything that worries them here on earth. But I pray, Lord, that you would work now in the hearts of those who have never closed with you, who don't know you, who have denied you, who live according to revelry and hatred and dissension and sorcery and lewdness and all of those things that were listed 
in that list of the ways of our first father, Adam. I pray you would do that life-changing, heart-changing work, that you would put your spirit in them, that you would cause them to flee to you, to flee to Christ, the rock of their salvation, and that they would find their refuge, and that they would find your love in him, and that they would know that they're saved. Please, Lord, we beg you, do this, not for our sakes, but for the sake of the glory of your Son, our